So now you have an SVO2 that's like 50 to 60, and you have a lactate that's going up, 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 and you're on all these pressors. That's a patient who is in trouble, right? And if you don't do something about that, if you don't have any other out, ECMO is kind of the right out there. So that's a patient that needs VA ECMO. They need cardiac hemodynamic support. Welcome back to PeteScript. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric ICU fellow from UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin, a critical care fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind us what we do here at PeteScript? Absolutely. PeteScript is an educational pick you podcast. We're trying to find the best bedside teaching spiels around the country and the world and put them online for you. And what are we talking about today? So in this series, we're providing a broad general overview of ECMO, and we co-recorded it with the Cribsiders. This is perfect for a pediatric resident or early PICU fellow or a nurse or RT that's just coming over to the PICU side to really get their feet wet when it comes to ECMO care. That's right. In part one of this discussion, we cover the underlying physiologic rationale and the important components of the ECMO circuit that allow you to support this patient in the ICU. We also cover the key differences between VV and VA ECMO and how you might choose which is most appropriate for your patient. Yes. And there's no better person to explain this than Dr. Fauman. Karen Fauman is an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Chicago and a dual-boarded pediatric intensivist and palliative care physician at Comer Children's. Dr. Fauman is one of the biggest Michigan fans that I've ever met. She got her MD and did her pediatric and pediatric critical care training there. Now she's at the University of Chicago and she is the critical care medicine fellowship program director and the ECMO medical director. Dr. Fauman is very active in ECMO-related research as well, with a specific focus on the psychosocial aspects of critical care in these children. That's right. ECMO may seem like a very complex topic, but she certainly simplified it for us. Like she said, it's kind of all trains and potatoes, right? (laughs) All Casaba. But let's get right to the interview. Dr. Karen Fauman, welcome to the Trip Setters. We are so excited to have this talk on ECMO. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Uh, this is great because this is a combination podcast where we're looking at Pedstrit curbsiders coming together to talk about an ICU topic. But before we get into this great content, Karen, can we go by your first name? Is that all right? We're an informal group. Sure. Beautiful. All right. We're already friends. Great. Off to a great start. I want to learn more about you. Our listeners want to learn more about you. Can you give us a little bit of an introduction? Give us a one-liner about yourself and maybe something that you're interested in outside of medicine? Sure. Um, I'm a mom of two kids. I'm a wife. I'm a pediatric intensivist. I'm a pediatric palliative care physician. I'm an ECMO enthusiast, which is lucky because of the episode we're doing now. And I'm a Wolverine. And I don't know if there are some non-Wolverines listening, but uh, I'm currently a Maroon, but I'm a Wolverine for life. We only take Michigan fans on our show, so not a problem. I think that's going <laughs> to We won't offend anyone. Yeah, we're safe. <laughs> um, so my pick you fellowship right now have lots and lots of free time. Do you have a favorite book that you love to to share with any physician? In your free time, that's I right. Would, uh, yes, yeah, so, very much so. <laughs> in your working time, I would say that you actually should probably be reading the Also Red book. But uh, in your off time, there's a lot of really good ones. I mean, I was like a huge medical nonfiction lover as a kid, even like a young kid. So I read Robert Marion's Intern Blues and Perry Class's A Not Entirely Benign Procedure, all of those books like in middle school. That's, I know that's really dorky. You um, were ready. 
Yeah, I knew. But I'm also kind of a medical history buff. More recently, I got a great book uh, from my husband called No Man's Land, which is about the first women-run hospital in, in England during World War I when women were really not allowed to practice medicine. And so they had sort of just started graduating women from medical schools there. And some people would let them take care of some patients, but usually only lady patients and things were different back then. But it's a really fascinating deep dive into those few years that they were running several hospitals uh, during World War I. Oh, wow. That is interesting. Yeah. All right. Our next question is, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? Oh, that's a good one. Um, so I had one time as an intern on the cardiology service where I got a call from the emergency department that they were admitting a three or four-year-old who was a former TGA, uh, transposition of the great arteries patient who had been repaired as an infant. And they were admitting him for acute respiratory distress. And they said, um, chest x-ray showed a little bit of pulmonary edema. They thought he was in heart failure. So they admitted him to the cardiology service, of course. And I was really tired. It was like early in the morning and I'd probably admitted a bunch of patients and I was feeling a little lazy. And back then, I'm dating myself a little bit, but back then when you wanted to look at a chest x-ray, you had to go downstairs to the x-ray oh. reading room and you had to find the big like, what's the word for it? Like the big reel that you pressed a button and it would like, oh, wow. and it would squeak around the turnstile. And then you would finally get to your x-ray whenever you got to your x-ray. So I didn't go down to look at it because it was late and I did not have it in me to go look at this x-ray mm. in the middle of the night. When I examined the kid, he looked pretty good. He was sort of chatty and tired, but when, you know, was talking to me, it didn't seem to be any distress. I may have written for a dose of Lasix. And then right before rounds, I got it together to go downstairs to the x-ray reading room and I do the thing with the x-ray <laughs> files and I come upon his x-ray and I look at it and I'm like, gosh, I really don't see any pulmonary edema. But then I follow the x-ray down just a little further. And there is an exactly quarter size density sitting right no. at the gastroesophageal junction. Oh I went, huh. So I went upstairs and I went into his room and I said, patient's name, did you eat money? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> oh my <laughs> That's gosh. Awesome. And I said, oh. And I think really the lesson is like, A, trust but verify. Um, mm -hmm. But B, uh, you know, even uncommon patients get common ailments, right? Like you can't assume that just because he's a TGA that this is related to his heart. And, you know, probably you shouldn't have been admitted to the pediatric uh, cardiology service. You should have probably gone mm -hmm. to the OR for... GI or something. Yeah. But wow. Anyway. Yeah, the, the lace, it's won't, he's not going to pee that out. <laughs> no, <laughs> turns yeah. out, no, probably not. So great. A good life lesson. Trust but yeah. verify. Yeah. And what a great snapshot into how things maybe used to be going <laughs> yeah. down to radiology for your. Yeah, we had a back way then, way back. It may have just yeah. been where I trained, but I mean, this was only, this is like 2004, 2005. It's not that long ago. <laughs> <laughs> Very fun. So Karen, you're program director and much of what you do is mentorship, fellows, residents coming through. What do you think makes a great mentor? And then do you have a particular experience with a prior mentor in your career that you wanted to share? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of things that go into being a good mentor. I help our fellows to pick their clinical mentors and their mm -hmm. research mentors sometimes. I think it's really meeting someone where they're at and helping them sort of figure out how to sort of strengthen the things that they're already kind of geared towards being good at. I've had lots of really good mentors in my career. And I think for the purposes of this podcast, it's probably, it would be remiss of me to not mention Bob Bartlett. He was 
sort of credited as the one of the inventors or at least early developers of ECMO. He was my mentor. He was the mentor for many other people in the ECMO world. We refer to ourselves as ECMOlogists, which mm. is, uh, I don't know if other people use that word popularly. But even before I had an interest in ECMO, Dr. Bartlett actually also was kind of a mentor for a lot of us for many other parts of the medical school sort of curriculum. He was also my mentor in probably the most important part of my med school career, which was the med school smoker, which is the med school parody that's based on a musical or a movie mm. and is a full length, like orchestrated feature musical every year. And it's like a huge deal. It's probably got a bigger budget than any play I was in in my theater major co wow. college days. And he was sort of the inventor of the modern smoker. He turned it into a musical back in his day as a med student uh, at my institution where I trained. So that was my first introduction to him. And as a prior theater major, immediately thought he was pretty cool. And then he also, you know, started the Victor Vaughn Medical History Association at the school. And so another thing that I thought was interesting. So I think as far as mentors go, he's really a great role model because he's such a renaissance man. And he's got so much breadth and depth to his knowledge and his personality. And I think is such a great role model for so many of us who sort of missed the the throwback to sort of old school uh, medicine yeah. and the way that it was taught some of the good parts, not the bad parts. <laughs> I love that. I think the combination of the humanities and I have always said, and you can ask anyone, ECMO and musicals just go together. And so <laughs> I, uh, I think he really is validating for that. So this is wonderful, uh, a great mentor. And I think this is a great opportunity where we like to try to virtually mentor and, and share expert knowledge, such as the information that you'll be providing us. And so I'm excited to dive into some content. And Alice, maybe do you want to start with our first Peds Crit ICU unit case from Cashlet Children's Hospital? I would love to. So here at Cashlet Children's, uh, we've got a four-year-old male admitted to the PICU intubated with severe ARDS secondary to pneumonia. Despite high ventilator pressures and several adjunctive strategies for his ARDS, he develops worsening refractory hypoxemic respiratory status. The team is concerned that he requires ECMO support. So yeah, maybe before, you know, jumping into all the details of how we're running this, uh, Karen, can you walk us through what exactly is ECMO and, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? What's the goal of ECMO? When, you know, why are we even considering ECMO? Sure. So ECMO is an acronym for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. With ECMO, you're really trying to accomplish support of a patient who either has severe enough respiratory failure that they can't be supported on a ventilator without causing severe lung damage, or a patient who has hemodynamic or cardiac failure who can't be well supported on vasoactive agents, or both. The ECMO circuit's sort of draining the patient's blood exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide, and then pumping the blood back into either the right side, the venous side of the system, or the left side, the arterial side of the circulation. But really, the main goal of ECMO is to deliver oxygen to organs. That's really like the tenet of ECMO is oxygen delivery. So um, maybe it's a good time to talk about oxygen delivery. I don't know if I you guys so. have talked about this before. Okay. So Let's sort of start with the equation. I know math is not everyone's favorite to hear about on a podcast, but this will, I, I promise I'll try to make it painless as much as possible. So the equation for oxygen delivery is the cardiac output, which is your stroke volume times your heart rate, right? And then multiplied by the oxygen content of the blood. And the oxygen content is going to be your hemoglobin times the saturation times 1.34 some say 1.36. There are people that have very strong opinions about this. I do not, but I generally go with 1.34. 
plus the PO2 times 0.003. Sometimes that last part, that PO2 times 0.003, because that's such a tiny number, is just left out. And people just Mm -hmm. say, don't worry about that part, because that's like, that's hardly any oxygen, right? In ECMO, that can actually be an important number. But for most purposes, the bulk of the oxygen content of the blood is happening because of hemoglobin oxygen saturation and that 1.34 number. So I'm going to break it down a little bit better so that it's not just an equation that you have to remember for boards. And I'm going to use a metaphor. And I do have to credit another mentor of mine who is my first chief out of fellowship, Rasha Durgam. And thanks to Rasha Durgam, every Cribsider listener is going to know about the trains and potato metaphor. However, Mm. I'm going to like flesh it out a little bit and really get into the weeds. And I'm going to take that metaphor a little further. Yes, yes. Yes, a little further. I'm going to try and make it even a little more nuanced than he even did. So I want you to imagine that the body and its organs are connected by a train system. Okay, so it's like one big train system. We'll call it the Oxygen Express. The heart is the engine or the station. The organs are the villages and the villagers. The track is the blood vessels. The train cars are your red blood cells. The cargo, which is potatoes in this situation, are oxygen-bound hemoglobin. So, I mean, and all of the villagers, they live on, on potatoes. So that's their diet. So the speed the train is going is your heart rate. So that's how fast it's getting around the track. And the number of train cars in each train length is your stroke volume. Okay. And all of those cars have to be filled up with potatoes to bring to the villages to deliver their cargo. And you send the train cars out loaded with their potatoes. And at each village, the potatoes are unloaded so that the villagers can eat them and consume them and use them for fuel. And each village gets its appropriate share. And now the train comes back around with whatever surplus is in it. Now, the surplus is really important. And this is probably the most important number in the PICU, in my mind. I may be more biased because I'm an ecmologist, right? But the surplus is the SVO2 here. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But the surplus has to be a certain amount in order to be able to adequately provide supplies to the villagers. Because like maybe some of the potatoes are bad. Maybe they just don't want to like dive all the way into the train car to get them. But ideally, you are delivering actually four to five times the amount of potatoes that the villagers will actually eat. And so when you get back to the station, the cargo should still have about 75 or 80 percent, three quarters or four fifths of the original cargo in it. It sounds wasteful. Right. And in this time, and you know, when food prices are going up, like whatever. But mm-hmm. but let's just say that you get back for adequate fuel. You really want to see that return cargo be 75 or 80 percent. So under normal circumstances, that's going to be the case. And this number is really important in determining how sick your ICU patient is. And it's also really important in determining the ECMO needs of a patient. So if a patient, for example, has too few train cars, meaning they have decreased stroke volume, let's say they don't have adequate contractility to their heart, they have to make more trips around the track to make up for that. And that's why you get tachycardic when you have decreased contractility, right? When you have a patient who shows up with myocarditis, they are tachycardic to beat the band, right? These patients come in and I hound the residents and the fellows with Liebermeister rule. Do you guys know that one? Unfamiliar. So Liebermeister is the amount of change in heart rate you should see for every degree above normal in fever. Oh, yeah. Hmm. 
Right. Oh, I love name. this. I'm about to quote this at every rapid television. Here you go. It's been told to me that someone else calls it the Fahmenmeister, but I don't think that's probably totally accurate. I would like to we'll take credit. We'll start using it. We'll start using oh, sure. it. Yeah. So Liebermeister says for adults, I believe the number for adults is that for every degree above 98.6 Fahrenheit, you get an increase, I think, of six in your heart rate or six or nine in your heart rate. For every degree Celsius, it's nine. That's what it is. Unfortunately, nobody cares about kids as much as we do. And so no one actually technically extrapolated that for children. So I personally decided that for a pediatric patient, that's about 10% for every degree Fahrenheit, right? Because six, an adult, normal adult heart rate's like 60s. 10%. So sure. And 15% for every degree Celsius above 37. So anything beyond that, is an inappropriate increase in heart rate based on a, a fever. I mean, you have other reasons to increase your heart yeah. rate. You could be on albuterol. You could be uh, all sorts of reasons. A lot of, of reasons, reasons, when, a lot of reasons. Sure. But if you have a patient who comes in with a fever and is real tachycardic and is making you nervous and you're not sure if they're septic, if you have a kid who is febrile to 38.2, but their heart rate's 190, like mm-hmm. something ain't right. So that violates Liebermeister. There's also Faget sign, which is the infections that actually specifically violate Liebermeister. So those are yellow fever and salmonella typhi. Interesting. So tidbits of like info. So you can use those on rounds too. Oh, you can say which, I, which infections will not cause an appropriate rise in heart rate. This is amazing. I, as far as on the current trail without the detours of the yellow fever yes. and uh, typhi, <laughs> which we, we, should, we, we can absolutely talk about. It sounds okay. like the... ACMO is replacing the the harvesting lungs. The the farmer who's the lungs is bringing the potatoes onto the the train, and ACMO is the lung dialysis that's replacing the farmer of putting the potatoes on the train. How close is that to the metaphor? Am I am I totally off? Sort of, yeah. I mean, I think of it as a separate train system or an additional train system, an augmented train system. I mean, okay. if you if you have that patient who, despite you loading up extra train cars and speeding up the train with epi and norepi and everything. If you still don't get adequate surplus, if your SVO2 or your surplus potatoes are still not at least like three to one, if you're not at least sort of 60% when you get back, or some would say 50%. And if they then start having to look to other sources of fuel, then you are starting to think about, do I need to think about ECMO? So these are patients on lots of vasoactive agents who are not able to achieve the adequate oxygen delivery. So in this case... I would suggest that you might think about them as having an alternate source of fuel. And for the purposes of this, I'm going to expand the metaphor and say that those villagers are going to start using cassava root, another random thing. The only reason I pick cassava root is because cassava root, without being processed and cooked thoroughly and then pounded, is actually toxic and causes cyanide poisoning, which causes lactic acidosis. I admit, I may have lost the metaphor. So the cassava root... (laughs) Is the ECMO replacement? No, oh, is the potato yet. alternative? Okay, we're not all right, there yet. Right. Cassava root is building have... your lactate. I see. I see. It's when you're in anaerobic. You don't have enough potatoes. You're you're going to the anaerobic respiration. The cassava root. Yeah. You're you're going uh, beautiful. I'm with you now. Sorry. Yeah, so so you don't have enough potatoes, or at least you're not, you're not getting enough potatoes, and you are your SpO2 is dropping, and now you've gone to look for another source of fuel. You're eating cassava root. Now your lactate's rising. So now you have an SpO2 that's like 50 to 60, and you have a lactate that's going up 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 and you're on all these pressers, that's a patient who is in trouble, right? And if you don't do something about that, if you don't have any other out, ECMO is kind of the right out there. So that's a patient that needs VA ECMO. They need cardiac hemodynamic support. 
And that patient then can, you can give them extra train trips, you can give them extra train cars, and you can fill it up with potatoes because you're oxygenating the blood for them. And then you get that back around. So understanding just kind of how oxygen delivery works should really help you understand the physiology of ECMO. That's just hemodynamic support. That's a, that's a VA ECMO patient. So that patient has lactic acidosis. Maybe they have septic shock, but they're not too vasodilated to be able to support on ECMO. That could be a problem sometimes. So that patient needs VA ECMO. And then, you know, you can start thinking about patients who are in respiratory failure as a second type of ECMO, and that's VV ECMO generally. So for most intents and purposes, the two main types of ECMO are VA and VV. If you get fancy, there's VAV and VVA and oxyarvad and all sorts of other stuff. But most of the time, if you can understand the general tenets of VA and VV, you're going to do fine. As a PICU resident, as a PICU fellow, probably need to start thinking about those other things past that. But for the most part, that those are the main tenets. So if I were just kind of think about this, ECMO is able to increase your, your oxygen delivery because one, it can increase your cardiac output through flow, and then it can increase oxygen content because it can actually put oxygen into the blood. It helps both sides of the equation, I guess you could say. Yeah. And if you think about that other sort of metaphor where a patient or a train system has, instead of having not enough train cars, but instead just doesn't have enough potatoes they're starting out with a low oxygen saturation, then their SVO2 is also going to be inadequate coming back to the other side. They're going to have too little surplus because they started out with too little. Mm -hmm. And those are patients in respiratory failure. They can't get oxygen into their bloodstream. So those people are going to need VV ECMO. Those are the ones where the ECMO is getting the new potatoes, the VV ECMO desaturating. That I the VV is that's the bread and butter for my potatoes. Or that was the, that was the ECMO I was more familiar with. I'm on board the train now. I'm sorry, Zach, you had a question. Yeah, it, well, it's just a, a, a maybe a simplifying comment. Something that I didn't understand early in residency is that you have to deliver an excessive amount of oxygen compared to what's consumed. You have to deliver, you know, in health three or at least three, maybe four or five times the normal amount of oxygen that's consumed. That wasn't clear to me until you know deep into my residency. And then the other thing is recognizing that increasing your heart rate, tachycardia, increasing your stroke volume is an early sign that something's bad going on. So like a, an early, a normal response to hypoxemia or inadequate oxygen delivery is tachycardia, increasing the heart rate, trying to make up for that reduced oxygen delivery. And or anemia has the same response. I would get tachycardic anytime a patient was sick. So that's how I knew they were doing rough. When I got tachycardic, <laughs> it, it was bad news bears. But your lactate didn't go up because you were able to increase your output and and keep up with your extraction. More potatoes. I didn't need the cassava root. It's all potatoes. Cassava. 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 Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So here we've got this four-year-old with ARDS. I'm really wondering what in an isolated ARDS patient is going to tip you over to calling the ECMO team? And then as we start to get the circuit set up, what are the important things for the people at the bedside to know about it? Sure. Um, So a patient who is in respiratory failure, I, I think about Largely in pediatrics, at least, we have uh, a calculation called the oxygenation index or the OI. That's the thing that we've kind of used historically to determine the severity of respiratory failure in an infant or a small child. It kind of starts to lose a little bit of its wind when you start talking about large adults with like big, thick chest walls, because then you can't actually really tell what the alveoli are seeing in terms of mean airway pressure. But the oxygenation index is a calculation. I think of it as the work that you're doing over the result you're getting. So it's the mean airway pressure 
times the oxygen percentage you're delivering, FiO2, divided by the PO2. And as that number edges closer to mid-30s to 40, despite optimal ventilator management, which is a little bit subjective, and in littler kids, that generally means that we've often tried the oscillator first. As that inches towards 30s and 40s, and 40s kind of the classic cutoff based on some studies back enough years ago that we probably should redo them, that number is where people really kind of pull the trigger on putting a patient on VV ECMO. In a four-year-old, you might be a little challenged to find a cannula that is easy to use for VV. You might be able to. So that patient might end up going on VA ECMO just because of lack of vascular access. Mm. And so just so I can to confirm and, and uh, kind of as a teach back, we're talking VV ECMO for kids on respiratory distress. So whether it's severe RSV or, or COVID, and we've tried optimal ventilation lung compliance is too stiff or mechanical ventilation is failing, we're seeing the OI hit a critical level. And that's when we're thinking BV ECMO, lung dialysis, uh, oxygenation, uh, putting potatoes on the train. Is that is that about right? Yeah. The only problem with the lung dialysis uh, metaphor here is that, or analogy, actually, that's an analogy. Uh, the lung dialysis analogy here is that um, you think of dialysis as removing something from the the body or, sure. or filtering something. And in fact, when you put a patient on VV ECMO, you usually have to add volume to the system in order to be able to support them. And so you end up needing to dialyze them. Reverse dialysis. <laughs> yeah. Got yeah. it. Reverse yeah. dialysis, which is a bad metaphor yeah. because you do need additional actual kidney dialysis. Great. Awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm on board. Yeah. So you're worried about this kid. You call up the ECMO's technician. You say, hey, we got to put together a circuit. And you see all the tubes and the wires everywhere. What's going on over there? What is actually in the ECMO circuit? Yeah. So it's a daunting looking machine, right? I had a med student once ask me it, why we couldn't send patients home on ECMO. And I was like, have you ever <laughs> seen an ECMO circuit? Listen, Not sometimes in the CICU, I wonder. But yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, won't, I won't argue there. Um, so when I explain the circuit, I like to explain it sort of starting from the patient and then going around and then back to the patient so that you sort of have, you're traveling in, in that space. So starting from the patient, there's a venous cannula, which is like a large catheter. We're talking anywhere from like 14 French, let's say in a really small kid to 31 in a very large patient with the biggest kind of cannula we use. So it's pretty big. It's like a hose and it is either inserted into the internal jugular vein or the femoral vein generally for most purposes. The tip of that cannula is sitting at the SVC RA junction if you have an IJ cannula or it's sitting at the IVC RA junction if you have a femoral cannula. So pretty long cannula in there. And it drains the blood from the patient to the circuit. And then you go through some tubing and then you get to the membrane oxygenator or the also called the membrane lung or the lung. That's where oxygen and carbon dioxide are going to be exchanged down their concentration gradient. So the way this works is the initial membrane oxygenators were uh, made of silicone. And the way I think of them looking is they were sort of like a metal cylinder. And then inside that metal cylinder is a silicone roll of paper towels. But if you think of that roll of paper towels as having two ply, then between the two ply, the oxygen travels, and around the two ply, the blood travels. And across it, or sort of between you know, the plies, the blood and the oxygen interface, and the CO2 diffuses out of the blood and into the, the sweep or the oxygen so that it diffuses down its concentration gradient, and the oxygen diffuses into the bloodstream from the sweep. And so 
the oxygen is attached to the membrane on the top and it just kind of runs off leader flow from either a tank or the wall, just like oxygen would to a nasal cannula. And the flow, like I said, is, is the sweep, right? So it's, I think of it as sweeping away the carbon dioxide. So that's why I, how I remember that it's sweep or how I help people remember that it's sweep. And then the CO2 removal is actually pretty efficient because there's really no CO2 in oxygen, right? It's 100% oxygen going. So you're really efficient at removing CO2. Still efficient, but not quite as efficient as giving oxygen to the system. The newer membranes we use are called, um, well, I won't use the brand name, but mostly are made of polymethylpentene hollow fibers. Say that three times fast. PMP is the easier way to say that. And these, um, I think of also dating myself, you know, the game that you may have had as a kid where there's like a bed of nails and you can imprint your hand on it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. Throwback. Yeah. Yeah. So, So the PMP membrane looks just like that thing, (laughs) that game that probably has a name and I don't know it, Um, except if you think of the nails as having lumens in them, right? So they're tubes instead of nails. So now you have a similar concept where the oxygen and CO2 can diffuse down their concentration gradient, but this time the oxygen goes through the lumen and the blood goes around the nails. And that's how it diffuses down the concentration gradient. And then the blood's going to come out the other side with CO2 removed and oxygen added to it. And we mostly use these hollow fiber membranes these days because they're less thrombogenic, they last longer, and they're less inflammatory than silicone membranes. So these are much, and they're much more efficient because they have a bigger surface area because there's all of those little lumens or or hollow fibers. Then the blood goes to the pump. Old days, we used a roller pump, which I'm sure Alice and Zach have never seen because they're pretty much gone except in a couple of like steadfast cardiac ICUs where they have little tiny babies. The roller pump was this big, huge metal device. And when this med student asked me about, you know, could we send them home on ACMO? This is the sort of device we were using. So I was like, I don't think Mm. you understand what you're talking about here. Mm. Um, So this is big metal device and sitting on top of the device is sort of like a wheel with a track around it. And inside that track, the blood tubing runs And there are two big spokes on the wheel and they turn at an RPM that is sort of programmed in and they push the blood along the track by mechanical forces. And there's like a little handle that's taped up next to it in case the power goes out or you have to travel and you turn it by hand. Hmm. I make it sound like I did med school in like 1846, but I actually... It's like the the butter churning, I feel (laughs) like. (laughs) I actually graduated in 2004, so it's not that long ago that we were... Hang in there, Trevor. That's right. Circuit. You're making mashed um, potatoes. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, the, the reason that we got away from roller pumps, though, is that the process is pretty like hemolytic and mechanically destructive to blood cells because you're pushing that stuff along. But mm. the bigger reason, the more important reason is imagine that there is a clot or an obstruction or someone steps on the tubing distal to the pump. If that happens, you have an obstruction distally. And because you're using mechanical forces to push that blood along, you get pressure buildup in the system between the pump and the obstruction, and you can actually get an explosion of the pump, which is never a good scene. Not good. We don't like that. No. So what they used to use in the olden days, um, back in the day, was they used something called a bladder, and they would splice in this sort of distensible balloon into the tubing so that it could absorb the pressure differences. But that only worked to a point. So, I mean, you could still get like spin art blood spattered walls if it exploded, which, again, like no one wants that. Mm-hmm. So now we use... No, yeah. And luckily, you've also never seen that, hopefully, right? Right. Because now we use a centrifugal pump. 
And the centrifugal pump is what almost all programs are using these days, sometimes not for little babies for reasons that are probably beyond the scope of this conversation. But the blood comes to the pump from the membrane and there's the pump actually consists of just a little cylinder with a well, a metal cylinder with a well. And in the well, there's an embedded magnet and that's all set up to the processor and the computer and some sort of technology. And then sitting inside the well is your pump head, which is a disposable. So this is made of plastic, very expensive disposable, but it's disposable. And that looks sort of like a saucer with a top inlet and a side outlet. And the blood comes in the top and inside there's a disc that has spokes on it. And the disc has a magnet embedded in it and it hovers above the magnet in the pump. And you have your pump, you know, set at an RPM or revolutions per minute that you want the magnet to cause the other magnet to spin. And that disc spins at the RPM that you set and it pushes the blood out the side of the pump head out of the... And so if there's a distal obstruction in this situation, the wheel just spins. It doesn't actually cause pressure to build up. So that allowed us to eliminate using the bladder in most cases, although some people are like really stuck to keeping the bladder in place. Most don't anymore. And it also allowed for it to be a little bit less dangerous to step away from the circuit for a second to maybe have someone managing two circuits simultaneously Mm -hmm. because it's unlikely that your circuit's going to suddenly explode if a clot forms or something like that. So those that's the pump. And then the blood sent back to the patient by either the arterial cannula, which is sitting either in the carotid artery or the femoral artery um, or the axillary artery or centrally through the chest into an artery. That would be a patient on VA ECMO or to a venous cannula. We call it an, I sometimes refer to it as the arterialized cannula because it's oxygenated blood now, but that blood can go to the venous return cannula which is either going to be in the IJ. If you have a dual lumen cannula, you're taking from the IJ and putting it back in the IJ. Less commonly, you might see it returned through the femoral vein. Most likely, they would return it through the IJ instead of the femoral, even if we're using two cannulas in this patient. So the main setups that we use are going to be, for a patient who needs VV, you're usually going to see femoral IJ. So the blood comes out the femoral vein and goes through the circuit and then goes back into the IJ. That's the classic form of VV. Or you're going to see a dual lumen bicaval cannula. So that's going to be like a cannula that removes the blood from the SVC-RA junction, from the IVC and the SVC, and then returns the blood back through the IJ, but in a different lumen that's aimed at the SVC-RA junction so that it doesn't get sucked back into the cannula. Um, and then for VA, the most common for babies is going to be IJ carotid or transthoracic through the chest, which is central cannulation. Or for a bigger patient, when they just need hemodynamic support and not respiratory support, you might see femoral femoral VA cannulation. The axillary artery is like a newer thing that you can use in a bigger patient instead of the carotid because it's not going to cause a risk of stroke. And then there's like some sampling ports and stuff, but like those aren't that important. So maybe when we're at the foot of the bed and we look over there at the circuit, it looks complicated because it kind of is. But <laughs> yeah. but our learners coming in, if they wanted to simplify it down so they just understand the basics, there's a venous or a drainage cannula. There's a membrane lung, which really is just functioning to increase surface area for to allow gas exchange. There's a pump, and there's some variabilities in the pump. But there's a pump, something that gives pressure to the blood, and then it comes back to the patient, whether that's going to be in an artery or, or a great, ve- great vein. 
And really wherever that blood is being drawn from and then where it's being placed back is going to decide if you're VA or veno arterial or VV or veno venous. Correct. Exactly. Good job. I think this is really wonderful to kind of understand the the mechanics and you know what's actually going on. I think that's a great way to unveil what's literally under the black box. Um, we've talked a lot about VA and VV, and VV I think is something commonly when again we talked about respiratory failure going on. Can you talk about some of the common indications for someone needing an ECMO for VV and then also for VA, and when VA might be considered rather than VV? Yeah. So a patient who needs VV is generally going to be a respiratory failure patient with ARDS, right? So that's from lots of different sources. They could have a pneumonia from a virus. More more recently, obviously, everybody knows that COVID was a common indication um, for adults certainly to go on ECMO, although we had some pediatric patients in in the pediatric world as well, certainly, that needed it. Um, There are patients that are going to need it for influenza, hopefully not too many this year because we're already pretty stretched in the pediatric world. And really, these patients are, like we said, high vent settings on like 80 to 100% oxygen on high PEEPs with OIs that are approaching or are above 40 despite optimal management. And you're sort of tracking their OI as you're getting blood gases. For a patient who's needing VA ECMO, more commonly, the the standard indications for VA are you know, not able to support them without significant lactic acidosis, et cetera, despite pressors. So those are patients with myocarditis, with congenital heart disease postoperatively, with septic shock who can be supported. You can, you can sometimes run into a problem with patients who have septic shock that because they're so vasodilated or vasoplegic is the word we use, you might not be able to get adequate flow in order to support them on VA ECMO, but we can certainly try. Toxic ingestion, so classically a calcium channel blocker ingestion is one where you might consider VA ECMO. Mm. Persistent arrhythmias, congenital diaphragmatic hernia, other respiratory failure that isn't amenable to VV ECMO. So for example, in a three kilo baby, there's not a lot of places to do VV ECMO. And we used to have a... Um, a special bicaval cannula for infants that went off the market and has not really come back despite people kind of keeping their fingers crossed that it would. And there are some newer versions of that that I haven't really personally used yet, so I can't speak to um, whether they're going to be a good replacement. But for the most part, babies under, some places would say 5 kilos, some might say 10 or 15, will end up on VA even if they're going on for respiratory failure. And then if a patient is needing to go on in the midst of a cardiac arrest, then that's eCPR or extracorporeal CPR, essentially, right? And so those patients are always going to go on VA. That's really helpful. Yeah. Well, something that really was unclear to me coming through residency, and even now as a fellow at times, is what makes a patient a great ECMO candidate? What might not make them a great ECMO candidate? And I know it's controversial, but yeah. <laughs> if you were to leave our listeners with some broad strokes, general guidelines, yeah. what, what comes to mind? Yeah. I mean, no wonder you're confused, right? Because people have really strong opinions about this and that is a moving target. But as a general, like historically general rules, the people who will be the best ECMO candidates, the person that you think has like a 95% chance of recovery is going to be someone who has a reversible condition that we know is reversible, has no other underlying major medical conditions, has either single failure, uh, organ failure, or just their heart and lungs failed Um, has an intact immune system because remember you have all of these artificial surfaces that the blood is being exposed to. So the risk of infection on ECMO is incredibly high. And it's also really hard to tell when someone's infected because they can't really mount a fever 
and their white count might be elevated anyway. And, you know, there's a lot of other things that we use to detect sepsis, you know, blood pressure, for example, that you don't really get when they're on ECMO. So that's another reason that the intact immune system is so important, that they have vessels that are available to cannulate and that they have an expected course of less than a few weeks. So that's not to say that if these indications aren't met, that you are absolutely can't go on ECMO, but the best candidates have meet all of those criteria. And if um, this is somebody who may need longer than a few weeks or something, it's not that they can't stay on. It's that generally the outcomes are a little bit less good the longer you're on, because remember, you have to be systemically anticoagulated. And so the risks of bleeding, of uh, other sort of complications and infection and things like that increase the longer you're on. And then it's generally limited in infants who are too small. So under about 1.8 kilos, you're really limited by size. Um, under 34 weeks gestational age, you're limited by the risk of intraventricular hemorrhage. So you can't put a patient on that's younger than 34 weeks, really. You know, so these are a little bit back and forth. There's also this sort of vague, uh, the ELSO guidelines sort of say low probability of good outcome and quality of life or something like that, which is like a throwaway, right? It's anybody you don't think is going to do well. Um, and we all, you know, it's a, it's a truly scarce resource in times of, for example, the pandemic. So we sometimes have to make difficult choices about who gets a circuit and who doesn't. And that's one of the few truly scarce resources in the, in the medical field these days. Mm -hmm. So um, it can be, it can be a little bit hard to decide. And it doesn't fix anything, right? ECMO is only gives you a bridge to have more time. That's right. So it's bridge to recovery, bridge to decision. So a decision about whether to continue life supporting, life sustaining therapies, um, bridge to transplant in some situations, but it doesn't do anything positive for the patient other than allow them to rest their heart and or their lungs or both. And that's really the most important part. And this is where I get real frustrated when I see people trying to push a patient off ECMO. The whole point, especially on VV ECMO, is to rest the lungs. And if we push the lungs the second we go on ECMO to see how much we can get out of them, you won't recover. So you really have to sit at rest settings and you give yourself some time, give the patient some time to start to recover. And then you start testing very briefly to see whether they're getting any pulmonary compliance, whether you can inflate their lungs with a little bit of pressure. And if you can't, you back off and you wait some more. And then you try again in a few days or a week and if you can't, you back off and you wait some more. And people have different, you know, this is a sort of sit on your hands as a don't just do something doctor stand there sort of situation, right? So you don't want to be super aggressive because the harder you push to get a patient off, the less likely they are to come off. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscriptpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at critpeds and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcasting application and share with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to support the making of the podcast, please see the description for Venmo information and how to become a Patreon. Any donation will be appreciated. Thank you again for listening and goodbye.